we start today's episode, just to let you know, you can now nominate for the 2025 Northern Power Women Awards. To be in with a chance of celebrating with changemakers, trailblazers and advocates on the 6th of March 2025. Nominate now at wearepower.net. Women podcast for your career and your life, no matter what business you're in. Hello, I'm Sam Walker, and welcome to a brand new episode, episode three of the Northern Power Women podcast. Pinch me on the cheek at your peril. On the way, you'll hear from Julia Fawcett. She's the chief executive of the Lowry in Salford, one of the largest performance and visual arts centres in the UK. She talks about why vulnerability should be something that's discussed without prejudice in the workplace. And she's very honest about the challenges she's faced and the very difficult decisions that she's had to make in her career. And I really, really wrestled with that. I'd spent 10 years building up my reputation. I'd got to the point where that next step was on on the table. But it was making me, it was taking me into a direction that I knew I genuinely did not want to go in. In Ask the Hive this month, a place where you ask the question and the Northern Power Women Network provides a host of advice, we talk about why tech is facing a challenge in recruiting people outside the middle classes. The best case scenario, kids don't have hot water in their house. And on the worst case scenario, the teachers are providing the girls with sanitary towels because they can't even afford that. And in our discussion group, our panellists chew over three juicy subjects and things as ever get a bit lively. I think that's a bit of a cop-out, actually. Um, I mean, it's very easy to say that and then that's the end of the problem. It's women's problem because they're not speaking up and I don't think that's the case. But first, let's check in with the founder of Northern Power Women, the one and only Simone Roche, for some news from HQ. Episode three and the support for this podcast just keeps on growing. We're delighted to say we've had over 1,500 downloads and that's just after two episodes. And we are just completely thrilled to bits. Please do keep sharing um, and reviewing. Send us your comments. We'd like to hear about what you want more of, what you'd like to be talked about on this podcast. It's here for you. Please leave a review and let us know what you think. We're really excited that this month we're going to be opening the nominations for the third Northern Power Women Awards. And we're looking for you to recognise your role models, trailblazers, agents of change and innovators who are driving and accelerating the gender equality agenda from the North. We're also going to be growing our future and power lists, celebrating the success of those of our up and coming and our leaders and those influencing the agenda. This month, we're also launching our NPW Hour on Twitter, a weekly exchange every Thursday at midday. So please do join the conversation at North Power Women and have your say. We're keen to hear from our Northern Power Women returners as we are working on an opportunity for those of you who are coming back after career breaks, whether it be year, 10 years, please do get in touch because we'd like to get you involved in this great opportunity. Have a great month and please keep sharing the podcast. As ever, thank you so much to Simone. And just to echo what she said, we would love you to get in touch. You can follow everything that Northern Power Women does online at northernpowerwomen.com and also on Twitter at North Power Women. Now, to this month's discussion panel. Thank you to everyone who came along to be part of the audience. Do check Twitter, actually, for details of how you can be part of next month's audience. And thank you very much indeed to The Landing as well in Salford, who hosted us this month. And a big thanks, of course, to our great panellists who discuss job sharing at a senior level, keeping your plans for a family secret and whether women need to take responsibility for the gender pay gap.
thank you so so much and welcome to the northern power women podcast episode three without further ado let me introduce the three women who are going to be talking to you today we have uh, rebecca taylor who's co-founder of sea loss which supports tech businesses also co-founder of women in tech north meetup group mum to four-year-old ethan i love the fact that's the last thing you put when it's when it's the most difficult thing yeah, it's definitely the most important thing <laughs> <laughs> also a big hello to erica ingham she's cfo of mediacom north passionate about instilling diversity and equality through all levels of business just an aside if you're thinking mediacom north i know that name winners of course of the medium business awards and the northern power women awards uh, this year and also a big hello to maya dibley she's head of programs and partnerships here at the landing where we're recording live today supporting over 100 small businesses also a trustee for girl guiding and one of the fabulous future list of course at northern power women a big thank you to all of you and hello okay the first question that has come in and i'm excited to hear your reaction to this question actually but a bbc document revealing the salaries of some of its highest paid talent sparked a row about gender pay gap within the corporation and i'm sure you saw the many many articles that followed discussing why this gender pay gap still exists not just within the bbc but within all business so a question that was raised a lot of times and what i'd like to discuss now is how much responsibility personal responsibility do women need to take for their own pay shortfalls reaction Mm. that's what I thought (laughs) Maya let me start with you Um, so I guess you could go lots of different ways on this and I think it's you know it's about everyone in society I guess coming together to solve this problem but yes I think they're absolutely you know women should take their responsibility I think from my point of view the it's about where is the best place to take that responsibility and in what way and I would say that actually yes you've got to speak up in your own workplace yes you've got to negotiate and do all that kind of side of it within businesses but I think it's a lot more powerful for women to take responsibility by actually creating their own systems and their own businesses and doing their own thing um I think a lot of the time, you know, when you're doing it within an existing business, you, there are phenomenal glass ceilings and there are things that you're going to hit. And absolutely, we can keep fighting to break those. Um, but I think it can be exhausting. And I see a lot of women burning out that way because it's exhausting. And I think it's it's actually a lot easier to... It's still hard, but it's, it's I do think it's easier to potentially create your own thing and actually create the way that you want that business to be. Increasingly, I think we're seeing women creating those businesses and actually, ultimately, not just creating businesses that work for, for women, but work for for all different types of people across the spectrum and you know creating businesses that support families better and support all different parts of society um so yeah i think we do need to take our responsibility but i think that responsibility also extends to looking after ourselves and taking care of our, our well-being and actually sometimes that means there's different ways of taking responsibility that looks after yourself as well mm. as your business um, that isn't just constantly battling that might just burn you out Rebecca, you work in an industry within tech, which um, isn't the most, well, it's been, it's been called not the most female friendly of industries. Of course, it is a very male dominated environment, of course, it historically has been. Um, do you think there's pay disparity there and are women doing enough, for want of a better phrase, to make sure that's not the case? There's definitely a pay disparity um, within the tech business, especially um, from what I experience. I do coach and mentor a lot of women in technology, um, especially from going from that employee level to that leadership level. Um, and from the research that I've done, what I find, and it's very um, very stereotype, is in terms of women tem- tend to be a lot better at collaborating. We're natural collaborators, where men tend to be a lot more competitive. So when um, they're talking about pay rises and continuous developments, men tend to be more competitive and talk about what they've done, what projects I've done, what what I've achieved. Whereas us as women, we tend to go what we have achieved, what we've achieved as a team, what we've achieved as an organisation. So um, what what then tends to happen is that that sort of gets sort of overlooked. Women get overlooked in terms of when it comes for pay rises and men get those promotions. I know from my own experience, I've worked on a leadership team of 13, being the only female, I had to fight for a pay rise. Um, we, We tend to be a lot more prepared when we go into 
going to those meetings, but we definitely do have to fight a lot more and we do have that responsibility to take more action upon it. Do you think there's some responsibility, though, from, from employers as well to recognise that men and women quite often uh, present themselves in different ways? And because a woman isn't stood perhaps like a man by going, me, 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 look at me, look what I've achieved, but is going, look what my team has achieved, yeah. is there also responsibility from them t- to see that is how women operate? No, definitely. There definitely needs to be a massive education piece in terms of organisations. So um, I do quite a lot of work in terms of team effectiveness and getting companies to really understand in terms of different strengths within different individuals and different teams and really big education needs to play on sort of the men of those leadership teams as well. Erica Ingham from Mediacom, first of all, um, do you think women need to take more responsibility for our pay? I think that's a bit of a cop-out actually. Um, I mean it's very easy to say that and then that's the end of the problem. It's women's problem because they're not speaking up and I don't think that's the case. I think women can be more confident. Men definitely are better at asking pay, for pay rises generally than women are. Why? Why do you think that is? I think it goes back to the old you know if there's a job spec and women can do 90% of it they won't apply and if men can do 50% of it they tend to and I'm talking generally here but I think there is a you know we're not as confident generally in the workplace but I think personally I think it's the employer's responsibility to make sure that they do have equal pay and often the woman doesn't know whether she's got equal pay or not as we saw with the BBC report there were quite a lot of women that weren't massively happy when that came out who worked for the BBC who undoubtedly were quite surprised so um, you know the staff aren't necessarily uh, sort of empowered with that knowledge so uh, a, a business has a moral duty to make sure that they are paying the women the same as the men for doing the same job quick question before we move on to the next uh, the next question that we have uh, just a yes or no answer have you personally ever asked for a pay rise mayor yes uh, Erica yes and Rebecca yes well there we go a full house role models right there <laughs> brilliant stuff okay well question number two Now, this has actually come directly from um, someone who's been in touch with Northern Power Women saying, as an employed young woman, when is it okay or is it ever okay to talk to your employer about the fact you want to have children? Is it ever okay to talk openly about this? Uh, Or should you perhaps to protect your chances of promotion, keep it to yourself until you're actually pregnant? Now... Mayor, you're the, the youngest woman on the panel today. You're not a mum, are you? No. What's your What's your thoughts? Um, I guess there's there's an ideal answer, the ideal world, and there's the reality. Um, I think from me, you know, so absolutely me and a lot of my friends have these conversations, and I think I would love there to be in an ideal world, a world where you actually can discuss that. So obviously among my friends, we talk about that. I talk about our timescales when we might want to and stuff. Um, and I think I would love to be in a position because I think, you know, your manager, line manager um, should be someone that can coach you and advise you on those kind of things and it would be brilliant if that can extend to lifestyle um i think in reality um i guess you know from stories that you hear all the time you have to be careful um and i guess it's that situation where um so you know i don't know what the answer is because obviously i've heard really positive stories and lots of of negative stories as well um i think i think if you know as a manager myself i would always want to um be able to have those conversations be really open about it i think it 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 goes to that bigger picture of actually once we get to a point where um, actually, you know, parental leave is completely equal and it's considered completely equal and therefore, you know, you're not penalised on either side. Therefore, you know, it's not a case of if you bring that up, it's considered a negative thing or it's more likely that as a woman you're going to do it or not. I think once we get to that point and it feels more equal, then you might be in a safer position to be able to have those conversations openly. Um, I guess at the moment, I think, you know, from everything I've seen, um, stories and stuff, I think um, you've got to read the situation you you know you know you know the the culture you're in and whether it's something that's that's can be talked about um or not i guess erica what's your your experience and also also your thoughts on this just got visions of a load of men making appointments to see the manager and saying they're planning on having children (laughs) (laughs) can't really see that happening somehow um i mean i just i just don't think it's the employees employer's business at that point in time and as a mum of two children i know that you plan on having children you don't necessarily get them and when you're not planning they sometimes turn up so from a practical point of view it it seems irrelevant until that you until you're actually 
in that situation, at which case, obviously, it shouldn't be a problem in the workplace. But it's interesting, isn't it? You might have, you know, a group of men sat around, one of whom's newly married or been married a couple of years. He might be in his late 20s, early 30s. And people go, oh, do you think you might have kids soon? And he would probably feel very differently about saying, well, yeah, we're thinking about it in the next 18 months and a woman of the same age would. Yeah, I mean, quite. But I mean, we should have an open and honest uh, sort of workplace environment where people can discuss these things. But, I, you know, I just don't think it's relevant to work personally. OK, let me let me ask you, please, Rebecca Taylor. Um, I can only really talk from personal experience and um, just to mirror what Erica said. Um, you know, I planned on having a family three years before my little boy actually came came along. So if I had actually gone to my manager at that time and said, oh, I'm starting a, thinking about starting a family, and then it took three years, with the reality of the situation, his unconscious bias would have slipped in for those three years. You know, I might not have got the promotion I got, I might have not been given the opportunities because he might think, oh, in nine months' time or ten months' time that should be going off on nine months' maternity leave. There's not enough work done around actually um, encouraging more women coming back after career breaks, maternity leave being the main one. And we really need to focus in terms of actually supporting them going through that transition. You know, whoever's had that career break will know you lose your network, you lose your element of confidence, you lose the, you know, especially in the tech industry, it changes so fast. So there's tech skills that you lose. Mm -hmm. There's more support needed in terms of getting returnships back into work. And just to show a hand, say, I'm not going to name any names. Anybody here discuss um, the fact they were thinking of having children with their managers before they actually got pregnant? One one person in our audience here today, just one. Would anybody now think of discussing that? No? Is it because, show of hands, you think it's just your personal life and it's got nothing to do with work? About a third, about a third, that one. Okay, really interesting. Well, this is all about starting conversations, this panel, of course. So some really interesting conversations are going to be started off the back of that, I'm sure. Okay, our final question today. This was actually inspired by our Person of Purpose interview on this episode three of the Northern Power Women podcast. You're going to hear that in a moment on the podcast. It's the CEO of the Lowry, Julia Fawcett. And in conversation with her, this issue came up, which I think is very interesting. As an employed woman or man... If you wish to work part-time or in a job share, can you expect to be given a senior role? And Erica, let me come to this one first, please, with you. I mean, I think it's almost easier to do a senior role part-time because they're less operational. So practically, it's a lot easier, a lot of time spent on emails and phone calls and, and meetings that you can schedule around that. So I think absolutely. And from a business point of view, if we're really precluding people who want flexibility at that level, then you're missing out on some hellish good candidates, which is a really bad idea. And what about the, the notion of job sharing? Can you have, say, could your job as a CFO, could it be you and another person working two and three days each or two and a half days each? Would that work from an operational point of view? I think it could work, but it would take very close collaboration between the person that you were job sharing with and you'd have to have a really good transfer of information as you sort of handed off, handed off and picked up, if you know what I mean. Would you consider employing two people and say the position directly under yours? Or would you think, oh my goodness me, I've got a feedback to two people, get information from two, but it's, it's too much? Well, I think practically it might be quite handy because if one was on holiday for a week, you'd have the other one in a bit. So uh, yeah, absolutely. Rebecca, let me ask that to you. Um, uh, senior positions, can anyone who wants a job share or to work part-time really reach for those, those higher roles? Definitely, um, living proof of it. Um, for, so I'm co-founder of an organisation now. My previous role, I was global head of HR for a tech, SaaS tech business, um, and I work part-time. Um, I actually got promoted whilst I was working part-time and on maternity leave, um, so I'm living proof that it can happen. Um, just to echo what you said, it's in terms of you doing strategy work, so you need to get those off-site days, you know, working from home, having that flexibility, having a clear mind to actually do those projects to move the business forward, um, so you're less likely to be needed in the office you know seven hours a day you know five days a week so it definitely can work and what about the people who were working underneath you did it did it did they find it challenging did they think oh this has happened oh wait a minute Rebecca's not in today I, I can't get that support was there ever times like that yeah um with the leadership team especially and they were all men um so on a Friday you know I did have to pick
pick up the phone, you know, answer Slack messages, etc. But I was quite clear in terms of, um, you know, this is where I'm going to be. This is the day I'm not going to be working. And I was clear with my expectations. I think if you communicate effectively with them and say, right, I won't be answering the phone between this and this, or I'm off site between this day and this day, then, you know, they can, unless it's really urgent, they can wait till 24 hours till I come back in. Mm. We haven't got any men in the room today, and usually we do. It's a shame, actually, to know whether um, if, if they have any experience of that as well or, or whether they would indeed wish to work part-time or in a job share, because it is sort of so historically, I suppose, and anecdotally more of a female employment situation. Maya, I mean, you are you, you're already a manager, of course, but 10, 15 years hence, when perhaps you may want a job share or, or work part-time, do you think that might preclude you from getting the really big roles? Um, again, I think on a practical point of view yeah I think there's a lot of stigma still out there but I think equally there's a lot of work being done to really champion those role models so the power part time list is something that I found really useful I think there's like a list of like 50 women on there who are all kind of work and well no it's actually women and men um, working in part time or job shares which is really helpful um, I think Becky touched on it as well is that it speaks to I think a wider conversation around um, it's not just about women and men but it's about the knowledge economy that we work in now and the fact that actually actually working four days a week regardless of whether you've got children or I think actually from a practical point of view might be actually a more healthy and a more effective way to work in a knowledge economy um, because you need that time and that space to kind of have have more downtime to think uh, you know and actually come up with some you know now that we're not you know we don't need to work that necessarily nine to five because we're not in factories anymore you know it's a different situation so what what really excites me about the conversations we have around working part-time and and like that is actually it's not just about balancing things around family which is a really important thing in itself but also around actually what do our brains need and what do our workplaces need now um, I think also you've got to look at the fact that um, to Erica's point that that actually more senior roles are, are can be more effective in, in part time um, positions and if you look at you know plenty of men and women um, but in the past men you know NED roles and non-executive roles and things like that they're all part time they're all kind of hands off hand you know kind of roles so actually it's about the story you tell as well like there's lots of men who've got portfolio careers around sort of part time roles just because you're a woman or you're in a slightly different position doesn't mean that suddenly that's devalued I think we've got to tell the story that actually it's a more effective way of working as well as being practical just in terms of a, a definitely an education piece um, needs to be done around um, companies in terms of about focusing on output rather than the numbers of hours worked the amount of organizations that I go into and they talk about oh well um, that person's not working effectively they're only doing like seven hours a day nine to five but well, does that matter if they're producing the output um, an effective output then they should that that's great performance it shouldn't be about how many hours that you work within an organisation. Thank you all so much. Inspiration for a lunchtime. Uh, Our podcast panel... Thank you so much then to Rebecca Taylor, to Maya Dibley and also to Erica Ingham. Please do tell everyone you know about uh, the Northern Power Women podcast and thank you so much for coming today. Thank you again to our brilliant panellists. If you'd like to take part in the future or you've got a suggestion for a discussion, please do get in touch. Just email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. That's podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Now it's time to delve into the mind of an individual at the very top of their game and find out what really makes them tick. What makes a successful person? What difficult decisions have they had to make? And how have they overcome challenges? Today, you hear from Julia Fawcett. She's the chief executive of the Lowry in Salford, one of the largest performance and visual arts centres in the UK. And our conversation started when I asked her if she'd always known which area of business she wanted to work in. No, I had absolutely no idea. I was the typical teenager, didn't know what I wanted to be, didn't know what I wanted to do. Probably, you know, sort of would have wandered around aimlessly for a few years. And I think certain things happened by accident that had an impact and changed me. And from there on in, maybe I began to be a little bit more sort of pre-planned and, you know, strategic about my career. So what happened? Well, I wanted to be an actor and I trained to be an actor and I graduated and I tried to get some work and didn't find that at all easy and um, had to obviously keep a roof over my head and eat. So I did what many would-be actors would do. I went home to mum and dad 
and I had to get casual work to you know keep things ticking over and I got a casual job in this new visitor attraction that was opening in Manchester called um, Granada Studios and it was sort of being set up as this answer to the Disney idea in Manchester tours of Coronation Street so I started there as a casual hourly paid tour guide and in five years I was the general manager Wow, that's quite a meteoric rise. Before we talk about that, I want to go back to the fact that you had dreams. You had long-held dreams. Was it difficult when you realised that perhaps those dreams weren't going to come true? Because we're always told, don't give up, don't give up on your dreams. But there does become a time when you think, this isn't going to happen. How did that, how did that feel? I think part of it was the fact that so many people were in the same boat as me. So, you know, people that I was at college with, people I was studying drama um, with over three or four years, we were all in a similar position. We all dreamed of being actors and directors and playwrights. And, you know, it, it is true. There is talent and there is resilience and there is hard work. And there's also a really good dose of good luck. And sometimes you just got to know when to say, well, you know, that's just not going to work out for me. Um, but the one thing I would say in business, I found that those early skills of acting and performing, they've not gone to waste. Oh, that's interesting. So you find yourself drawing on on some of the skills you learn. Can you give me a situation? Well, maybe in the earlier years, particularly as a young manager, you know, you'd go to... There are things that you have to do for the first time. So as you sort of progress through your career there is a point at which you will go to your first board meeting or your first senior level meeting. You'll never have done that before. And I think anyone would find that to be somewhat intimidating. I think for people who've had a bit of a, you know, a chance to practice, shall we say, the art of being something that you're not entirely, you know, true, true, being true to yourself, I think that those skills were really useful. Mm. I just pretended to be a really good manager until such a time as that I was a half-decent manager, you know? That's the truth. So that's really interesting, and I know a lot of people listening are at very different stages in their career, and you're right, we've all walked into the room and we've thought, I mean, it's famously called imposter syndrome, isn't it, where we think, I shouldn't be here. And the irony is, everyone feels that way. But what tips could you give, then, for people walking into that situation when they don't feel sure of themselves? Well, I think I think preparation is the absolute key because um, a lot of people just wing it. And if you are as prepared as you can possibly be, and if you can go into that meeting knowing what you want to get across, even if it's just two or three key points, you know, if you sit there for the whole of a, an hour-long meeting, but you make the two or three points that are crucial in terms of what you want to communicate, then I think that that's a really good steer. It's not dominating the meeting. It's not the person who you know feels the need to listen to their own their own voice it's the person who comes in and actually makes the crucial you know interjections that really change the outcome and and I very often observed that those kind of um, observations and um, you know the way in which meetings can be influenced in that way very often it is women that can do that did you ever feel as a woman in those high level meetings early, early on in your career that your voice wasn't heard I think Possibly not, but part of the reason for that was that the, the organisation that I was in um, was fairly male-dominated, and we are talking the 80s now, so, you know, big shoulder pads, you know, you had to... The whole sort of Margaret Thatcher thing. So, in a way, I think part of what I would do differently is not try to be as masculine or come over as macho um, as some of the men. So I, I think I kind of muscled my way in a bit. But, you know, lots of things happened during that time. I had my first baby and um, one of the managers said that it was unfortunate timing for the business, you know. So it was a very different world in, in, in the 80s. And I think a lot of women felt that in order to make it, you had to pretend to be more like the, the boys. Um, and I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's true. So let's get back to your really, really rapid rise from casual member of staff to what was the title you had again? general manager within five years so it was an unusual situation in that it was a new business and although it was associated to um, the television studios it was an entirely new management group um, a new startup effectively and in startups there are lots of opportunities to people for people to show their skills and get stuck in um, and I did and you know ultimately 
I took on sort of an operational role. I went to study at, at, at college and took some um, qualifications actually in HR management. I thought that was something that I, I needed to, um, to, to to learn and develop skills in and then ultimately progressed through the management structure, mm. became general manager before leaving the organisation after 10 years to become a CEO of a new facility. How did you cope with going back into work after having children? Because I know there's a lot of talk at the moment about returnships, about women who've taken time out, quite often quite a few years. And there is nervousness sometimes, a reticence and a a fear. Well, the situation that I was in, I think I was really fortunate. And I don't for one minute think that most women are in this situation so I think I was really lucky we'd taken the decision that my um, husband would be the primary um, carer for our children so I took a relatively small period of time um, off work after my first child and even less after my second. But that was knowing that I had um, my husband at home and, you know, his primary role was to um, to take care of, of, of the kids. So I was able to return to work fairly quickly. And I suppose I was really keen to demonstrate that I was still as keen, still as ambitious, still as hardworking. And, and obviously that does create um, a kind of a tension, that, that whole sort of balance, work-life balance issue. I don't think it's easy to crack, but I do think that one thing that that has sort of um, encouraged me to think about is how others in my own organisation then um, are able to return to work after, after having children. So I'm not saying that my solution was the right one for anybody. I'm not even entirely always sure that it was the right one for me, but it was what what we had to work with, and and we were fortunate enough to be able to do that. As you rose up quite quickly in those those early years of your career, being, as you said, you were in a male-dominated environment, was there ever a tension there? Was there ever a sense of, who's this young whippersnapper, you know, uh, sitting around the board table? How, How did your colleagues react? Yeah, you, you, you would get a lot of that. You know, um, I'm five foot two. So particularly when um, I took on my first chief exec role, I was um, 32, five foot two. And inevitably, if I was going out to a meeting with one of my team who might be male, they would inevitably be um, taller than me and quite often older than me. And you'd always get that situation where people would greet the male as being the most senior. And, you know, we used to sort of um, laugh about it and just sort of, you know, accept that that was part of the way in which women would be treated I don't think I would be as accepting now Mm. but at the time you just sort of smiled and and took it what advice would you give now for somebody who walks into the room and yes their male possibly older possibly taller colleague is is greeted I know it sounds really trite but just be smarter and just work harder and just be determined to achieve your goals and your objectives and not worry about it too much because you can't always influence or change people's habits, behaviours and culture, but you can influence your own behaviour and mannerisms and the way you treat other people. So, you know, make sure that you yourself aren't practising those behaviours, but ultimately just get on doing what you're there to do and, and try and let it wash over you. It's not always easy. Mm. I was once pinched on the cheek by a very senior person who said, it's always good to know who to blame when things go wrong. <laughs> So, you know, I have been there. I know how difficult it is, but, you know, the best form of, you know, revenge in those situations is is just to carry on doing what you're doing and succeed. Is to do good work. Just do do good work. work. Do you not find it frustrating, though, that you've got to be smarter, got to think ahead? There's all this extra pressure on just to be considered equal. Mm, I don't see it that way. I think people who want to succeed, male, female, young, old, I think they've got that drive anyway. They, they, they know that they have to work hard. There are very few of us who can get by in life by, by not working hard and not really trying to be smarter, faster, braver, whatever. I don't think that's a female thing. Did you ever feel stuck in your career path? Because you started off, you hit the ground running, you were phenomenally successful, you know, CEO by the age of 32. Was there ever moments where you thought, ah, I can't get out of where I am, I don't know where to turn next? Yeah, I think there was a period sort of when I'd um, been a manager for eight or nine years and there was a period where I was working in a group structure and the next level of progression would have taken me into a different sector, so away from the area that I had the passion for, which was working with 
people working in the entertainment industry, leisure. And the next progression would have been to move into a different sector within the same company. And I really, really wrestled with that. I'd spent 10 years building up my reputation. I'd got to the point where that next step was on on the table. But it was making me, it was taking me into a direction that I knew I genuinely did not want to go in. And so that was really, really difficult. And I took a different um, path. I went and um, set up a Millennium-funded visitor attraction. And at the time, so this is pre, you know, um, Millennium Dome and all those great stories, you know, it was pre the sense that these things could be successful in their own right. And at the time, all that they had was this sort of narrative around they're going to fail, they're going to be you know a landscape full of white elephants and I just thought well I'd rather do that and have a go at it and I really feel as if I can take the skills I've learned here and go over there and have a have a shot at it and I'd rather do that than stay here and progress into something that I just do not feel that I really want to do you know and and when I think back I think back to um you know, when I went to university, I really wanted to go and study um, drama. I wanted to go to drama school. My mum and dad didn't want me to go to drama school. They want me to go to university. And so I went to university to study drama. But to this day, my family think I study drama and English at university. <laughs> so there's something there about, you know, being true to yourself. And actually, um, I, think, I think I've learned to be true to myself. And that was the first time in a career sense that I had to do that. And it was just, no, I'm going to follow the area or the passion or the skill set that I think that I, I enjoy and, and gives me the most kind of reward. It's what I like to do. But you took a big risk. As you just said, you took a big risk doing that. How did that feel? Terrifying, utterly terrifying. And for months and months and months, I thought I was going to be sacked. My, my husband will actually tell you there was an occasion where I went into work and I telephoned him and I said, I'm going to be sacked. I've been called to this meeting and I know that I'm going to be sacked. And he said, well, why? What have you done? He said, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm just rubbish. You know, I'm just not, not being very good in this role and I'm going to be sacked today. And I went to the meeting and, of course, the meeting was about something entirely different. And I was just so completely wrong. And, you know, that was another lesson on how you can kind of lose, lose things yourself just in, in terms of your own head and the way that you think about things. And, yeah, so that was a really tough period very isolating and very much you know feeling that you had to succeed you had no option but to succeed and so how did you work through that I mean have you ever worked with mentors your husband obviously very key in supporting you through your career but did you ever have any any uh, people outside your family in that sort of mentorship role who could help you through I think informally so lots of um, close colleagues and people that I trusted and would um, discuss those things with but there's a shame that comes with not feeling that you're good enough and that shame means that you'd go and have a conversation with your mentor and somebody you trust and you would talk about the things that were slightly challenging but you wouldn't always talk about those things that were at the inner core of you know I feel really vulnerable in this situation because I just don't feel that I'm up to this particular task or role or job so I don't think I did share much of that with anyone other than my my husband um, but I am really keen to say, you know, to, to sort of point out that I do think there was something about a culture of a time, and I do like to think that things have improved somewhat in that regard. And I think people can be more open now in saying, "Well, I'm new into this role, and I do need some support in order for me to be as good as I can be." Um, I don't think I was good at asking for that support, and, and it certainly wasn't being offered at that time. So, someone in that very senior role, if someone uh, who works for you now came to you and said, Julia, I don't think I'm up to this. I don't think I'm doing a good job. All the things that we fear at some point during our careers, how would you respond to that? Well, I think part of it is um, talking through those fears and putting in place some concrete plans that if people know what they can do to work on areas of their role, I think that that makes a tremendous difference. Just actually being open about it and being open about it enables you to have a conversation where you say actually you're really good at that do you remember when you did this or do you remember when that happened and you can kind of you know push back a little bit on some of their 
own preconceptions. But at the same time, if there are areas where they do need help and support, then you're in a position to to offer that and give that. But I think it has to be done in an environment and a culture of trust because if there's no trust, Mm. then somebody's not going to open up to you and say, actually, I'm feeling pretty rubbish about this particular you know, thing that I've got to do. So I think all of this goes back to just having an atmosphere and an environment of trust within organisations. And that should come from the top down? 100% should come from the top. And if people don't feel that degree of safety and comfort and confidence, then it doesn't matter how good they are and how ambitious they are, I don't think they'll ever reach their full potential. How have you dealt with criticism whether it's been at a a kind of micro level whether it's been you know managers of yours or or people you've worked with in your own team who've been critical of perhaps the way you've worked or at a more public level you're in a very public facing organization now how have you personally dealt with that I don't think I'm very good at dealing with criticism. Like lots of people, if I um, if I get a piece of feedback, if I read a review of something we've done, if I read an interview, I will ignore the 90 positive things in that interview and I will focus on the one slightly negative or even very negative comment that was made and that is the thing that, that I will focus on. Um, I think that's a really bad habit. I definitely don't think it's helpful it's a really hard one to crack and and I do um, carry on trying to to deal with it. I think one of the best pieces of advice I I was ever given, and this is to do with with career now, was you are going to get criticism, you are going to find some really tough um, times. Make sure that in your work life you are able to touch on the things that really are important and matter to you so it's things like you know the stuff to do with my family stuff to do with friends the stuff that makes me me it's not just about work so that when things are really really tough I can remember that I'll still go home tonight and feed the kids and watch a bit of telly or you know and and that life still goes on and that's the best piece of advice I've ever ever been given. What are you most proud of in your career? Well, I'm really proud that I've made or been able in my career to make a great organisation. You know, this was a new place, this this job that I've got now, this was a new organisation. And, you know, I've been here for 15 years and I'm proud of what we as a team have achieved. Um, I'm proud of the fact that I do a job that I really enjoy. And I'm proud that I think that, that we've got a culture and an atmosphere here where everybody's doing amazing things you know we've got such a great team and an environment and a culture that supports that so I'm, I'm really proud of that and I'm dead proud of the fact that I've been able to achieve that in the city that, that I was born and grew up in. Huge thank you to Julia Fawcett the CEO of the Lowry. Now if there's a man or a woman that you'd love to hear on this podcast please do get in touch you can tweet at North Power Women or email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com thank you. So before episode three comes to a close, it's time for Ask the Hive. This is a chance for you to ask a question on something you're interested in, confused by, or maybe stuck with in your career. You ask, and then through the power of the brilliant minds connected with Northern Power Women, you get some answers. In a moment, you'll hear next month's question from Sarah. But first, this month, Kirsty got in touch and you responded. I work for a web development company in Manchester and I come across lots of teams that are made up of young white middle class men from usually affluent backgrounds Um, but I want to know if there are anything we can do um, to encourage more more people from working class backgrounds. Well I don't work in this this organisation now, but in one of my previous lives, I worked in a high school as the arts coordinator and work experience person for all the children, all of them. And what I learned then was if you don't get them young, you haven't got them because by the time they get to year 10, even year 9, they've decided what they want to be. And that might be a footballer, but they've still decided. And so if you get them a little bit younger when they're still sort of formulating those ideas, they're already playing Minecraft, they're already designing, they're already, in some cases, coding at uh, year 7 and even younger. So that's when you need to get them. You go into those under privileged schools and you introduce it to them then and you give them the resources then. So my wife works in Harper Hay as a teacher and that's one of the poorest places in the country. Now on 
the best case scenario, kids don't have hot water in their house. And on the worst case scenario, the teachers are providing the girls with sanitary towels because they can't even afford that. So if you're going to be targeting someone, you need to give them a sense of ability to do something and show them a different light at the school age. After that, you've actually lost them. And a lot of the kids that go into school there and they're going to, you know, going up to year, whatever it is, 12, 13, 14, whatever they come to, they are only focused on making a little bit of money to survive. And they do not have that belief in themselves and they do not see a way out of their situation. If you're trying to target them afterwards, you've already, you've already lost the battle. That's where you actually need to target them. Maybe we could have more apprenticeships as well. You know, like plumbing and other um, hands-on crafts, I see development as the same type of thing. You're building. It, it's a similar thing. Um, and if you have an apprenticeship similar to those, I think that could really help. I think if we could do scholarship-type scheme, for startup businesses, that would probably introduce a lot more people from working class background because it would give them the means to survive, like personally, not even as a business, to be able to feed themselves and live whilst developing a business because I think that's what's putting people off. When you're from a working class family, you can't just go to your family and say, can I have some cash for this? Because typically they don't have it. So I run an event called Chicks in Advertising, which is all about getting women involved in, um, yeah, in advertising or people who are interested in it. And one thing that we found um, is that uh, there's been a permanent discussion about you can't be what you can't see. And one of the things that I would advise for, um, I guess, companies who are looking to create startups and particularly uh, create some more diversity in tech is that there must already be role models in this area and there, there seemingly isn't. Um, the, the kind of role models that we have are so uh, high up like Bill Gates or Alan Sugar that we can't, we really can't see where the middle ground is and it would be much better I think uh, both for women and different races and anyone who's trying to create diversity in startups or tech to, to have um, a reflection of themselves, maybe that's in schools or maybe it's in hubs but somewhere where people could see that actually what they want to achieve is achievable as opposed to being a dream. Something that um, a friend, a good friend, a good working class friend was saying to me um, about just kind of schools and private schools and comprehensive schools was like, so I'm, I'm distinctly middle class and I went to a private school, which I often feel quite ashamed of for some reason. Um, but this friend was telling me that in private schools, people have this kind of thing drummed into them that they're better than everyone else and they can achieve whatever they want and they're entitled to achieve whatever they want. But apparently in comprehensive schools, you don't, you're not given that message as much and you're not made to think in that way. Um, I live in Ancoats, basically from where I can see out my window, which is on one side there's the gentrified part of Manchester and then there's Ancoats Estate opening up. So basically there's loads of great work going on at the moment in startups, in new, new thinking. We've just got to put some of those hubs in different places and that's one of, that's one of the things. So people can see the other thing that would be really good is to connect up with already existing um, organisations. Uh, Reclaim is a fantastic charity that works with young working class people in uh, Greater Manchester and they're rolling out nationally. They work with young people looking at leadership um, and inspiring them to articulate ideas. Those young people know what the future's about digitally. They know this, actually. <laughs> and, uh, so, it's, um, so it's actually connecting that up, so some of the, some of the work that's happening there, they can, be they can be incredible role models. So it's also some, and it's the usual thing of not being in your bubble, isn't it? There needs to be more awareness that there's those type of courses now available at university, because people just buy into the lie that you have to go and be an accountant or a lawyer or an architect and they don't realise that there's so many cool media tech driven courses that they could go and do that could label career that won't just be a useless degree at the end of it. 
and more and more those degrees are getting recognised whereas when they first got introduced there was a bit of like scepticism around them but more and more people are starting to recognise the usefulness of tech and how important it is in our life. One of the key things really, and it's not just for people who are from backgrounds that may be less affluent and working class, uh, but the whole range of diversity, is that they've got to get uh, education or access to education. That's the key thing. So to work for a tech startup, I think that presupposes several things. Number one, you have the skill set to do so, which I think is a presumption. Also, you have the cultural capital or the capital to do so. I think the working class bit cuts out one of those problems, isn't it? Is in, I don't have the capital to start my own business. But that doesn't mean you can't work for someone who does have the capital, so that's the difference. But if you don't have the skill set, then you can't do anything anyway. So actually, working class people, or women, or people from ethnic minorities, or any of these things, actually the most important thing really is education. So things like UTC, University Technical College, which is based in Media City, that's the reason why it exists. So people from different backgrounds can get into tech. They can start their own business, yes, but actually they can work for them. Um, a really big one, though, is they have to learn coding. And coding is going to be the key thing. So actually, how can you get more working class people into tech? You can teach coding more from a younger age. And you can wait for a bit, because that's all that's going to happen. So at UTC, we have, I think, 102 different feeder schools. So it's not just Salford and the surrounding areas. It's, you know, the whole of the northwest. And obviously, they're not all from Cheshire. They're not. This is the way of the world. However, a lot of them, sadly, are from richer areas. Now, why is that? Is that because, I don't know, more affluent people believe that coding is a good thing to do? I don't know. Is it because they're given enough time to believe that? I don't know. What I do know is if we can get the education message right out there to less affluent areas, we've got more of a chance of getting more working class people in tech. So you can learn to code online, and it takes six weeks, and it's free, right? But most people just, I don't know, don't know that. Like, you just have no idea. A lot of people do have laptops and, like, phones and whatever else. Like, and it's not necessarily, um, you know, that difficult to get hold of one of those things. But you just don't know. They don't know that you can, you know, study this stuff. Maybe the education system, and there has been many talks in this the last few months, years, is the education system hasn't changed one bit. Uh, and it might come down to the individual teacher who changes things up a little bit, but tiny, like a small amount. But a true change needs to happen, which I think the education as it is and the curriculum is based on getting people into full-time employment. And full-time employment isn't really the norm anymore. It's not nine to five. Dolly Parton was completely wrong. <laughs> but it is more based on you can work your own hours, you can make your own dreams come true, with, a, with reason, obviously, but um, is that there are achievable goals where you can be your own boss. Thank you so much to everyone who took part this month. Some really interesting food for thought there. Have you got a question, a problem, a dilemma that you need some help with? Do get in touch. Just email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com and we'll do the rest. Now, over this next month, the question for your consideration, something which I think affects so many of us, comes from Sarah. I am Sarah Starling. I'm a self-employed voiceover. I've worked in the media for 25 years. I worked for the BBC for a very long time across TV and radio. And I've been self-employed as a voiceover for 10 years. Recently, I joined a business forum on Facebook. And I asked this question of myself. My female colleagues regularly ask this of themselves, and we talk about it between ourselves. Why is it that we as women, successful women, don't feel confidence, question our skills constantly, whereas men don't seem to, or if they do, they keep it very quiet? How can we change that? Thank you so much to Sarah for submitting that question and we cannot wait to hear what experiences or knowledge that you can share and we really look forward to hearing what both men and women have got to say on this. If you can help, please record your answer using the voice memo on your smartphone and then email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com or open up WhatsApp on your phone and add the Northern Power Women podcast on 07928 387 712. That's 07928 387 712. To record your answer on WhatsApp, you just use the little microphone icon right next to the message box, hold down that while you talk, take your finger off the button and your message will be sent. All the details you need to be part of the conversation you can find online at northernpowerwomen.com. 
Again, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for all your feedback. We would love you to subscribe and leave a review or a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. The next episode arrives on October the 3rd. And until then, this is the Northern Power Women podcast. I'm Sam Walker, and this has been a What Goes On media production for Northern Power Women.